Uh, I am Jake Altaus with Frost Engineering and Consulting. I'm here to talk about poltruded FRP structures. Welcome to the Structural Engineering Podcast. This week, we're talking with Jake Althaus, a poltruded FRP enthusiast if there ever was one. Talking to Jake, you get the feeling he's somehow capable of not only designing FRP, but even manufacturing and assembling it if he needed to. FRP is a very cool material that I've just barely got the chance to design with. I think in its niche, it's a phenomenal option that's hard to beat. So with that, let's find out what there is to know. First, can you, can you tell us what FRP is? What you know? In my head, this is also fiberglass. What's the short word when you're talking to someone in the field? Are you saying, "Hey, could you grab a piece of protruded FRP?" Or you know, what's what's the <laughs> slang here? Uh, I generally would just say FRP. Okay. Uh, but I, I actually I did recently re-listen to your episode with Anakit about uh, you know bonded FRP on on reinforcing concrete structures. Uh, this is a bit different in that we're not applying the FRP to another you know, structural material. This is its own structural material. Uh, similar composition, though, there's either glass fiber or carbon fiber, uh, which is surrounded by a, a resin. Uh, that resin can be in a couple different types of epoxies. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, it's glass fibers encapsulated with a resin. I guess I'll go a bit further to answer your question on poltruded. I, I throw that around lightly, but yeah, a lot of people don't really know <laughs> what that process is. Um, basically, it's the process by which the FRP is made. Uh, there's several ways to make uh, you know, composite materials. And poltrusion involves basically pulling the glass strands through a die while simultaneously injecting the resin, which is thermocured, which means as you heat it up, it will set. So, so they basically pull all of these huge glass fibers all down through a specific dye, inject the, the resin at the perfect time, heat up the dye, and then out comes you know, the, the FRP shape. How long can these things get? Since we're kind of on that topic, like, can you get these in, in typical steel lengths? You know, If you can truck it, you can get it in. Uh, yes. Um, I actually asked that very same question. I recently went and visited one of our uh, the predominant producers out in Bristol, Virginia, and their answer was if if we can you know physically have the space for it to come out of the machine, we can keep keep pulling. Uh, cool. Funny enough, I actually heard a story that they they have actually cut holes in the block wall to allow the, the material <laughs> to, to push a piece out. <laughs> yeah, uh, which, you know, was crazy to me, but yeah, they can, as long as you can accommodate the standard tolerances, you know, similar to steel, right? There, There's mill tolerances for straightness and out of plumbness and, and, and things of that nature. As long as you can accommodate those standard tolerances, yeah, you can get it really as long as you can fit on on a vehicle. Wow, that's pretty neat. When Max brought up this episode to me, I was, I have to say, very ignorant to the topic. I've since learned a little bit more uh, about FRP. Uh, but, you know, one thing that came up, uh, you know, initially was was when and why would you use FRP? Um, so we have seen uh, over the course of our years working with FRP, there's kind of two main 
boxes that the FRP or projects can fall into. Um, first and foremost, and probably the most predominant, is a corrosive environment. Uh, and corrosive in this instance can be pretty widely varied. We've had uh, salt plants, which will eat and corrode, you know, galvanized or stainless steel in a, a relatively short amount of time. Uh, acid producing plants uh, for batteries and other type of, you know, industrial uses for acids. Um, the water and wastewater industry, which you can get some pretty you know, corrosive uh, substances in those environments. Um, that, that's kind of the first bucket, let's say. The second is given its lightweight uh, and, and I guess relative ease of production, and I think most importantly, lack of a need for secondary uh, corrosion protection is quick deployment, rapid deployment projects. Uh, we, we've had several projects where we're able to value engineer a secondary type appurtenance and deliver and erect the structure before the steel arrival date. Jeez. So, wow. um, particularly in the mission critical field, if you guys are familiar with that term, data centers and other types of structures of that nature, yeah. particularly out in the yard. Which is why I said secondary structures, you know, something that's going to support water conveyance or, you know, maybe electrical pertinences or mechanical pertinences uses or you know, means to access and maintain that type of equipment. We just thrive. <laughs> you know, the, the you don't need to maintain the structure nearly as often as a steel or other type of material. You can deploy it very quickly, uh, given its lightweight. It just, it makes a lot of sense, I guess, in that environment. Uh, given the things that it can help protect against, you said acid and salt and stuff, is there anything that uniquely attacks FRP just for our, you know, just for the other side of the coin there is like, oh, you can't, whatever. You Is UV, I mean, anything? Oh, that's, a, that's an excellent question, actually. And I will say that even within those environments, there are particular types of substances which will corrode FRP, or at least will diminish its useful life. Uh, every FRP producer generally has like a set list of things it works well with and things it does not. Um, but even within that, uh, you know, I did at the beginning of the episode point out that there, there are many kinds of resins mm -hmm. that can be used in this process. Um, the two most common, I would say, are polyester and vinyl ester resins. And that, but between those two, you can really probably accommodate, I'd say, 90% of materials or, or uh, substances you're running into. Um, and if you have a, a really unique situation, as long as the volume of application makes sense for the producer, they'll generally be more than happy to make you a, a custom uh, you know, resin mix to meet that specific uh, environmental requirement. Um, and, and and you asked, you know, what sort of things makes FRP you know, not a good fit? And, and actually to that, I would say uh, the same answer as Anna gave was fire or, or elevated temperatures in general, let's say. Um, if you have a, a high sustained heat, you either need a, a specialty resin specific for that application 
or it's more than likely another material is going to make more sense. Yeah. In the example projects that we were talking about, you know, a couple months ago, there there was one I recall that had a high sustained heat. Uh, it was, I think, access to a, a cooling tower. Is that what is sustained in this case? You know, is that 150? Generally speaking, if you're below 90 degrees, you don't need to reduce your strength or your stiffness. If you're in the you know, 100 degrees to 150, FRP can be used, but you need to accommodate the reduction in both strength and stiffness. Okay. Uh, above 150, like I said earlier, you're, you're probably going to need a specialty resin okay. in order to, to meet that. Cool. Yeah, I just wanted a number to it in my head. I, I, this is probably a number I don't remember correctly, but high temperature for wood is over 150, I think, right? So, I believe so. Our, I, I have, you know tried to design with FRP one time. Um, I didn't get that far and we, we went a different route. Uh, so that might come up a few times in this discussion. My, uh, my education stopped abruptly uh, and went elsewhere. One thing I was digging for when I was trying to do this design was, uh, was design guides um, or you know, sort of a code book, an industry standard that we have with steel and concrete. Are there those resources available? The answer is yes and no. Okay. <laughs> So recently, uh, ASCE, in conjunction with ACMA, which is the American Composites Manufacturers Association, uh, hosted a public comment period for a new standard, which is ASCE 74, Load and Resistance Factor Designed for Pultruded Fiber-Reinforced Polymer Structures. Quite a mouthful, I know. Yeah. Um, but... The, the provisions of this standard are, are based on a pre-standard, which was published in 2010. Uh, so that is what I would say the current standard of practice if you're trying to follow you know, the, uh, uh, a design standard similar to the other building materials. Um, beyond that, uh, each you know, pultrusion manufacturer generally has their own design guide, you know, similar to like a, a Unistrut or even wood, right? Um, I will say that those design manuals generally have, you know, basic column strengths, beam strengths, uh, recommended connection geometries, but they don't necessarily give you enough information to design a full structure. Uh, the, the most readily available one that comes to mind is seismic provisions. The, the only place you're going to find seismic provisions for FRP is in that uh, ASCE 74 document. Um, so, yes, the information is there, but generally here at Frost, we found that you know to effectively design with FRP in a, in a building-type structure environment is we've amalgamated all these resources from different you know, parts of the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, Europe has a code, uh, the Euro code, which we've referenced from time to time. And just all of the different testing documents that the pre-standard references, but we physically have found those documents, re you know, reviewed them ourselves, even found connecting documents to that. So we've, you know, we've spent several years just kind of getting this uh, bank of knowledge, if you want to call it that. Absolutely. With all this stuff that you've have you gathered, what has the response from plane reviewers been? Are they, you know, asking for a specific code? I feel like they they are the type to be a little more strict on, you know, this is not American code, this is not codified, or whatever the case. 
Um, so generally, our, our design follows that ASCE document, which was just referenced as a pre-standard, which is now uh, conjectured to be ASCE 74. That is our standard of design. And the only time, or I guess, I won't say the only time, but generally, if we go outside of that document, it's because that document doesn't contain the information we need. Uh, one uh, topic very close to my heart, which I won't get into much detail here, is but a prying action, which I'm sure you guys have heard of it for, for steel. Uh, they address prying action in FRP as it needs to be, you need to accommodate. <laughs> yeah, you have to consider it. <laughs> yeah, so, I love those lines. <laughs> yeah, which I, I don't, you know, obviously we're in our infancy with this type of material. I, I understand, you know, why that's the current provision. But you know, when that, you know, that sort of thing happens, we have to seek, you know, the, the best information we can elsewhere and using our engineering, you know, judgment, apply it to our application. Okay, so let's say we've got a steel building we've designed or, or you know, something similar to a building, and we want to substitute FRP in for that for a, a magnitude of reasons. Do they make the same shapes? Are you, are you doing the same pieces? A wide flange is the same wide flange, and how does that work? So I will I'll answer your question in two parts. Uh, the first part is I'll address your specific question on shapes. The generic shape profile, if they make it in steel, they make it in FRP. Now, the ratios of thicknesses and depths and, and all of that, we don't have nearly the array that steel does. Um, generally speaking, as far as eye shapes go, you, you fall into two categories. It's symmetric in depth and width, and the flange and web are the same thickness, or the shape is twice as deep as it is wide. That's the most commonly available shape. So a 12 by 6 is probably, I would say, the most common. And for columns, a 6 by 6 by 3 eighths or 8 by 8 by half, those would be the most prevalent. Uh, obviously, angles, channels. Uh, and then more secondary type shapes, I would say, like handrail, kick plate, decking. There's you know, a huge array, I would say, of, of shapes available. Uh, I will also say, similar to aluminum, we have the ability to make some really unique shapes. If you need a, a shape to fit a very specific, you know, uh, need, as I said earlier, as long as economically it makes sense, a lot of producers are, are more than happy to work with you to, to make this new shape. Uh, for instance, we are working with a company to develop a, uh, a rail, kind of like a, a unistrut type um, device, which would be used on top of uh, RVs or motorhomes to support uh, solar panels. And, and going to a, uh, an FRP type material, you know, eliminates the potential for corrosion over time. And it also reduces the weight, which would improve fuel economy. Uh, which cool. I, I thought was a, Gosh. yeah, just a fascinating. As you know. someone with a solar panel on top of a camper, <laughs> that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and we've had several uh, projects similar to that where somebody's come to us with a need and they felt FRP might be a good solution, and 
you know, we got to kind of work through, you know, the beginning stages of product development, just, you know, structurally fitting the best shape to the particular need. Uh, So I'll call that part one of my answer. Now, part two, uh, you you said if you had designed a steel structure and wanted to replace with FRP. Now, given the inherent, you know, composite material properties, a, a straight up swap from steel to FRP is just not possible at this time. Um, there, there's locations in a building that FRP makes a lot of sense, and there's other locations where it just does not make sense. Um, for instance, uh, probably the primary hindrance, I would say, of FRP right now is its lack of stiffness. Tenth of the stiffness of steel. Uh, so a modulus of elasticity of about 2,500 to 3,750 is what I would say the common uh, number is. In, in comparison to, everybody knows modulus of steel, 29,000. So if, if you have a particular element that's going to be governed by stiffness, say a really long span beam or the column in a portal frame or, or, or something of that nature, FRP isn't going to be your best solution. Now, where we find a lot of great applications in buildings is infill framing. Uh, I talked a bit about our mission critical projects. Uh, Data centers, the the interior data center space, is more or less the main building structure, keeps the weather and elements off of everything. And then there's a secondary structure inside of that that supports all of the mechanical, electrical, plumbing appurtenances, you know, uh, electrical and uh, pipes and, and all sorts of arrays of things. That interior structure uh, is a perfect fit for FRP. It, uh, as I, I believe we kind of talked about earlier in the podcast, it, it's really it's lightweight. Uh, we developed a custom shape that would span 20 to 30 feet, and it weigh, it's about 18 inches deep eight inches wide and weighs about 17 pounds a foot. Now, if you look in the steel manual for any 18 inch shape, you know, you're not going to find anything in the <laughs> 17 pounds a foot region. Um, so, so just being able to bring these uh, materials into an existing structure and erect, you know, the new interior structure, you just can't beat the, uh, the maneuverability, I guess. Yeah. Um, so to, to kind of keep building on this, I want to make sure that we kind of set the stage of the material and you kind of started bringing up the properties of it. And I, I know we're going to want to get into some heavier topics, but just to keep it the basic level, what is, you know, I think everyone is really familiar with the stress strain curve, let's say for steel and, and that drives into ductility and, and maybe something we'll get into. What does that look like for FRP? I am... <laughs> I'm going to start by saying I'm really appreciative that you guys want to get into this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, honestly. Um, but as you said, everybody's relatively familiar with the stress-strain curve uh, of steel. So you have the initial linear elastic portion. Then you have the plateau into plastic behavior and strain hardening and, and the ultimate rupture. Um, FRP doesn't have a, a yield. Uh, being that it's a, a resin material with glass fibers, those glass fibers are you know, a brittle substance. Once you reach the material rupture, 
it, it ruptures. <laughs> there is no plateau. There's no uh, there's no strain hardening. It's more or less linear elastic to rupture. So just that initial point or portion of the stress strain curve for steel is where we kind of live. Are you, are you using be, because it's a little less ductile or, or uh, prone to yielding? Uh, do we generally have a lower fee factor in these products then? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I know, you know not everybody listening can see my reaction, um, but given the infancy and, and kind of how young the code is and, and the lack of, you know, uh, data to pull from, we have some fee factors that are generally much lower than, than other building materials. Um, so everybody is, is generally, you know, aware of fee factors for more ductile limit states are generally higher for those, uh, more brittle limit states. Now, given we don't have a lot of ductility, uh, really the best one I would say is global buckling. You know, that's a great energy dissipation mode. Um, given we don't really have a lot, fee factors of 0. 0.5 to 0.6 are pretty common um and, and a lot of the i guess i'll build on that just a bit there's a lot of limit states uh, akin to these composite uh, materials that not everybody would be familiar with if you've done a lot of wood then some of them will look more familiar than say someone who's you know done primarily steel mm-hmm. i think we kind of went over the material um but what about like attaching to it? I, you brought up wood and stuff. And I'm like, okay, wood, you're throwing a nail into it. Maybe you're shooting in something, you know, a, a um, powder actuated fastener. Obviously, you're not. And maybe this is a great question. Is there resin welding that is also occurring in any of these opportunities, you know, any of these projects? Can you talk a little bit about what the attachments look like? Sure. And, and I'll generalize that if you're okay with this to connections. What what did, what does a connection look like? Um Primarily, uh, I would say the large, large majority of connections between FRP elements is bolted using some sort of clip angle, like you would see in steel. Um, now the you know the the over or the whole oversize is a sixteenth, similar to steel. Uh, pitch spacing and gauge spacing is you know, a little larger than steel elements, uh, particularly edge distances are a little larger, but Proportionally speaking, I mean, they look a lot like bolted steel connections. Um, so welding is something I really miss. <laughs> as, as someone who does a lot of FRP work, yet steel, you can solve a lot of unique problems by welding. Uh, sadly, we, we don't have any uh, uh, welding, per se, but adhesive connections are gaining more and more traction. Um, and when I say adhesive connections, I, I mean an adhesive specifically made for this material. Uh, there is some data available for the general construction adhesive, but primarily if we're using this adhesive for a structural intent, it's a, a very specialty urethane type adhesive that, that bonds this type of material. Um, so out, outside of bolts and adhesives, uh, we've had some select projects where we've used self-drilling screws 
uh, in a roof structure to attach the uh, the, the deck down to the, the substructure below. Um, and there is some marginal amount of data out there for justifying that type of connection. Um, nails, we've not got into yet, but I will say, uh, you know, given I'm around the material a lot, I have some that I've you know taken home with me to kind of play with because I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I also am a, I would call myself a handyman, so I happen to have a powder actuated fastener. Right? <laughs> so I, I was curious, I, man, you know, like wood, concrete, use these all the time. Cold form steel, another big industry where we use coal or powder actuated. So I, I was curious, yeah, how would it go? <laughs> um, well, I, I'll actually say, <laughs> uh, I could see an excellent application similar to cold form steel, maybe anchoring to an existing concrete element. I, I think it could absolutely be a great application, but the data available to me is as I guess, <laughs> what I've done. Anecdotal. Um, I, I've also seen a bit of, of, of data on using a powder actuated faster to attach uh, FRP strips to masonry. Uh, so I know some amount of research has been done to that. I I truly think that would be an excellent you know realm for future you know uh, research is these fasteners outside of bolts, I guess. Awesome. Uh, we keep saying bolts, and I've got a dumb question. What are these bolts made out of? Are this is this like we're you know just steel bolts, or are there FRP bolts if you need that in the application, or or some you know composite style material um so actually both exist oh cool uh, obviously steel bolts ev anywhere and everywhere uh we generally either use a325 because of its availability or if it's a corrosive environment sometimes we'll use stainless bolts either a307 or a316 um i would say that's the the vast majority we use a steel type bolts um now we have had some really unique projects where uh, and this was an application I, I didn't mention earlier uh, frp or composites in general most of them are inert to radio interference so if, if you have uh, say a structure where you need to really limit the amount of radio interference the, like the, the top of a tower that has an antenna um frp is perfect <laughs> you know it can uh, i know i'm i'm no expert in this in that particular field but it's a uh, invisible <laughs> i guess to the the radio waves and to to further reduce the impact we were having on the equipment they actually asked if we could provide a fiber fiberglass bolt or uh, an frp type bolt and we did find a company that that makes them it's more or less a continuous round rod in which they would cut the threads after the fact. Huh. And and where that kind of posed a unique challenge, and, and I, I believe you know, we lightly touched on this earlier, but I think this is a good opportunity to revisit, uh, UV degradation, you asked about. Um, fiber blooming, a lot of people are familiar with that term. Basically, if you include like a, a fiber a fibrous material and concrete uh, over time the surface can look kind of fuzzy 
mm-hmm. or even like uh, composite like uh, lawn chairs are a great <laughs> example. If it has a fiber reinforcement, it'll kind of look fuzzy over time. And, and why that happens is the sun's UV rays degrade the glass. The glass starts to have local failures. You, you start to see the ends of the strands, and that's why it starts to look kind of hairy. Um, obviously, we don't want to corrode our primary tension reinforcement. Um, so most pull-truded products today come with what's called a surfacing veil. So we have this bundle of glass fibers in a resin matrix, and then around that whole profile, they wrap a specialty uh, fiberglass mat that basically is a sacrificial layer, if you want to call it that, to protect all the glass within. It's also impregnated with some admixtures that that help resist UV degradation. Um, and, and why that kind of plays a, a part into the, the, the fiber bolts that we were talking about is when you cut the threads after the fact, you obviously damage that veil, that surfacing veil. And so the glass fibers are, are exposed to UV and you, know, you have the potential for you know, accelerated corrosion or degradation. Um, so Generally speaking, you want to use these bolts in an interior environment, somewhere where you're not having that constant sun exposure. I just keep bringing this back to some some basics. I, I <laughs> my my mind works like I just I need to have this really great foundation right before we start really going up. And so I, I apologize for you know for some of these questions, but with most structural materials, uh, and especially with concrete, we think about. How's it going to fail, right? You want concrete, you want to be able to observe concrete fail, about to fail before it fails. You don't want it just to to fail instantly. So by observation, can you see, what does the material start doing prior to it failing? Let's say in, in bending or in, in shear. Is it is there an observable piece to that? Uh, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm really glad you bring this up on, you know, identifying modes of failure and i think you know that's that's a really great piece that you know good structural engineers are going to focus on not will it fail how (laughs) so to to now answer the question relative to frp is the most common limit state for let's focus on connections because that's you know the the critical in my opinion piece is uh splitting so it's not necessarily a section rupture, like uh, say block shear, but it's a local, the lamina of glass held together by the resin separate. Uh, so you would crack or split the material. Um, now, this limit state doesn't mean that the structure has lost all ability to resist load. It just means that you're gonna have, ec- or I guess a, an accelerated rate of deformation at the joint but not a you know, immediate loss of, of, of strength. So that failure mode does give a, a bit of you know, warning. Uh, obviously, the auditory, you'll, you'll certainly hear it. And you know, being in the lab pretty often for some of our testing, it is uh, almost like a gunshot <laughs> hearing these materials separate. Um, so you'll have that auditory. Um, but beyond that, obviously, the, the visual, hey, there's there's a, a large crack that's starting to propagate from this region. Let's, you know, you know, vacate the premises and come back and do a you know some sort of inspection. So connection-wise, that's 
you know, our biggest, uh, what I point to a lot as far as, you know, a warning sign. Um, going to material side, um, for primary flexural members, uh, the general limit state is like a local compression buckling, a compression flange, um, which isn't, you know, a, a really great limit state for giving a lot of warning. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we have a deck up on top of the structure that would be, you know, periodically connected like an open bar grating for a, a dunnage type structure. Um, we generally, you know, ignore any benefit of that being there you know given we don't you know specify a a, you know, a repetitious connection pattern and the stiffness in one direction i mean you guys have seen bar grading it's not exactly you know a, a really solid material uh, we generally ignore it when doing our calculations but at least keep it in our pocket that you know it will do something there, there is a difference between element performance and system performance mm. so the chances of a local, you know, flange buckling phenomena is, I guess, reduced a bit by the presence of whatever's on top. Um, columns are generally flexurally um, driven, and and that's because, and, and we'll I'm sure get back into this, but with not being able to weld, moment frames aren't nearly as prevalent. Uh, so we have a lot of braced frames and pulling the work point of your braces down into the column is generally preferred you know so we uh, avoid any sort of gravity loading on our lateral force elements but in doing so we've now induced an eccentricity in our column which causes some flexural demands Um, and given the reduced stiffness you know we generally don't have a a really high flexural strength in our column sections Um, so that's actually, in my opinion, a benefit, giving it a, a flexural mode of failure rather than a, a compressive type mode. So I guess that's kind of the gambit of what you know I, I see as the controlling modes in a lot of the different elements. Okay. Um, I assume this material is a little bit like wood in that the analysis has to take into account the direction of the, the grain, so to speak. Is that accurate that if you, know, you are pulling tension perpendicular to the grain that may be the weaker mode and if you're bending with the grain that is probably the stronger um yes uh, that is true i i will say i'm a bit jealous of wood designers in that you know there's that wonderful equation up towards the front on uh bearing at an angle <laughs> in order, or you know being able to to capture a strength at any direction yes. i guess you know, given the two principal, you know, strengths, you can find anything in between. Um, we currently don't have that provision in FRP. Um, and, and I will say that the, let's call it strength, as you look from, let's say, perpendicular to, you know, along or parallel, it doesn't necessarily linearly relate as you change between zero degrees to 90 degrees. There's a Actually, the, the weakest, if you want to call it that, direction is somewhere, I believe, around 30 degrees huh. for most common shapes. Um, so given that our stress profile isn't exactly you know, a straight line interpretation, and every shape having a different you know, uh, orientation and 
percent uh, inclusion of glass fibers, they're all going to vary, which is why I think we don't why we don't have that current provision. Now, I guess to to come all the way back, we we have zero to five degrees relative to the grain or poltrusion direction. That is the strong direction. If you're beyond five degrees relative to the poltrusion direction, you have to use the minimum weak axis properties. So, it, yeah. <laughs> that, that hits you pretty quick. If, you know, say a column, if the column is primarily a gravity member, but you have 6% of the gravity load as a shear, we're already in the weak properties. Wow. So that can, it that in conjunction with the reduced fee factors, the reduced stiffness, you can start to see why uh, you know designing with FRP in some instances becomes quite cumbersome. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, I, so okay, so you you design FRP, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, do I? You know, we talked about design guides, kind of out there, talking about materials or. You know, there, there's some sort of specification of shapes and sizes out. Am I, as let's say the engineer of record, actually designing it and specifying it? Or am I saying this is an 18-inch FRP shape designed by others? Um, so we've actually had projects kind of go both, where the entire design is delegated, and it will be something to the effect of, you know, access platform by by others. And we've also had projects where uh, an EOR will attempt to accommodate a preliminary FRP design, and we're asked to you know, more or less validate or provide you know, a correction or a, an alternate suggestion, I guess we'll put it that way. Um, primarily, I would say it's, it's the former. You know, they'll, they'll just delegate the entire uh, you know, secondary type structure and we'll be responsible as the delegated designer and even provide signed and sealed you know, design packages for that. Um, but as I said, we have had a couple projects where we'll more or less design the structure, review it with the EOR, and they'll include that in their package with under their seal. Um, I, I personally prefer you know, us taking full responsibility for it. <laughs> it just it makes me feel more comfortable, especially given you know, not a lot of people have a lot of comfort with FRP. And that's just it's new, right? I, I'm not you know faulting anyone for that, but in that instance, it makes a lot more sense to defer to the engineering judgment of someone who uses it more than you do, I guess. So I, I prefer that route just for you know project success. Yeah. Um I want to talk about uh, moment frames and, and brace frames. <laughs> I, I think now I know I know we've got a lot, got a lot to talk about moment frames because you're you're helping on some research for this, I think. But let's do brace frames first real quick, uh, since I assume that is the most common uh, method for bracing a FRP structure. Are there any sort of nuances that are, we should know about besides our typical brace when we're looking at a brace frame? Um. So I would say that a nuance with steel would be we don't have uh, what I would call an eccentric brace frame, or we don't use them nearly as prevalently. Yeah. Or, or knee braced frames, uh, something where the work point is in the beam. And, and the reason for that is 
if I am imposing a constant stress, uh, similar to wood or concrete, FRP is prone to creep. Mm. So if you have a, a load or a long load duration, we actually have to accommodate that by reducing our strength based on an anticipated duration. So when we start, you know, imparting an eccentricity or a work point in a flexural member, or let's call it a gravity member in general, those permanent flexural stresses really diminish how effective FRP can be. Uh, so knee brace frame in, you know, say a live load event is going to induce both a, a positive flexure in your beam and uh, a strong or weak axis flexure in your column. So we generally try to avoid that. Mm. And I, I touched on that a bit earlier where that that's generally why we would pull the work point of the brace down into the column or, or concentric with the beam column work point such that we're not anticipating a gravity load in our lateral force system. I see. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and now I guess looking at the moment frame, is that possible? What is that connection? Like, how do you make a moment frame out of FRP? So this is a, a really cool uh, realm we've, we've recently kind of dove into and it came out of necessity. We were looking at a low-rise access platform, uh, which I believe was in Arizona. And it was so low-rise or short in height with so much MEP equipment below that braced frames just weren't possible. There, there wasn't enough clear space to deploy a braced frame. Uh, so in that instance, we said, well, we, we've got to make a moment frame. How, how are we going to do this? Uh, so where we landed was an adhesive. Uh, I, I touched on this earlier. Rather than welding, we, we use adhesive to provide that rigid joint restraint. Um, and given this was a specific prod project application, we the, the ASCE pre-standard and ASCE 74, which is the potential standard coming out, I believe, next year, um, gives an, an avenue for validation testing. Basically, if you test so many samples, you can develop a fee factor and a nominal strength and then you know, validate the, the product in that way. Uh, so we went that route, uh, just given there was no other data really available or very limited data, mm -hmm. I'll say. <clears throat> so we, uh, we partnered with the University of Notre Dame, which is also here in northern Indiana. I think we're 20 minutes from campus. <laughs> so. Cool. So yeah, it made a lot of sense for yeah. us to you know, skip on over and work with them. Uh, but we were able to develop a wide flange column to wide flange beam connection in which the webs of those elements are adhesively bonded together. So you can imagine in your head, you'd have to locally strip the flange on the bottom side of the beam and you know, the leading face of the column to allow that lap to happen. And then within that lapped area, we still, you know, have bolts, which would be from the incoming beams coming into the column. And, and, and I know that's a lot to mentally picture. <laughs> More or less, we have web-to-web -web bonded with some bolts that would eventually be used in a clip angle for a beam connection. Mm -hmm. um, but no flange connection? No flange connection, which, yeah, it's, it's wonderful this you brought that cool. up, given yeah. 
deal if you don't connect the flanges. Well, <laughs> it's not a moment of connection. <laughs> um, but given the small surface area of the, the the flanges relative to obviously the web, the web could be 100 plus square inches of adhesive area, a very large area. Whereas, you know, a, a half inch thick flange, you know, six to eight inches wide, that's just even and, and let's go into manufacturing tolerance. If that's not perfectly square, you're not going to get a good bond mm-hmm. to you know the the other element. So we targeted just bonding the webs, uh, understanding you know that wouldn't provide at um, you know peak optimal you know stiffness given the flanges weren't engaged. But we didn't feel the tolerance was there to really deploy that kind of uh, connection. But I guess to, to continue on the subject, because I, I really thought it was interesting, and I think you guys will really like to hear this, given you know, you know we talked about the stress-strain curve of, of steel already, is we actually found that that type of connection had two separate, very distinct plateaus. And the initial plateau was more or less linear elastic, and that was the adhesive, acting similar to, say, a weld. There was very little slip, if any, and so you had this really high initial rotational stiffness up into where the uh, the, the adhesive sheared uh, due to that applied moment. Uh, once that adhesive sheared, uh, the bolts obviously are still in that plane, so there was a lot of initial rotation in order to take up all the slop from the bolts. But once the bolt pattern was fully loaded, we actually reached uh, an ultimate, what I would call an ultimate strength that even exceeded the adhesive strength. Uh, go, and we pushed the test all the way to physical failure. We, mm-hmm. we actually ripped the flange off of the web. It was really cool to watch. But yeah, so, so you had, uh, you know, similar to steel, you have the plastic range where you have large amounts of deformation for very small increase in stress, mm-hmm. uh, which is more or less what we saw, is we had this really large you know, amplification of lateral deformations, but we didn't lose the ability to resist demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had this second kind of plateau of strength that even exceeded the initial. And I really felt comforted by that, in that you know, we have this initial stiffness, let's say for like service level events. You know, if, if like uh, California, if, if we're working out there, we don't want, you know, the fairly common seismic event to debond all of our moment connections because at that point, you know, it gets pretty, pretty you have a lot of <laughs> lateral deformations, I mm-hmm. guess, which wouldn't really fit the application. So if we can design, you know, a, uh, a service level event to fall within this debonding zone, so that you know we still provide the day-to-day performance and then we have this ultimate state where you know we go beyond the adhesive into the actual you know bolted connection at you know an ultimate event uh i think that would be you know uh, adequate performance if, if it doesn't collapse if you know everybody that was using it exits the structure and is you know safe yeah, that's a win for me. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Obviously, there'll be a lot of repairs that need done, um, but you know, at, at that point, the structure has served its purpose. 
So I, I think it's really neat that we have the opportunity to look at these two different service levels, which you guys have, have touched on the uh, performance or uh, what, what, what's the, the term here, where you, where you have a, a specific criteria that you're trying to meet at different service levels. But it, it's really nice to me that, that we're able to look at those two events kind of separately. And it, yeah, um, I guess I should ask the, the quick seismic question is, if you're doing project in California, what R are you anticipating? Is there <clears throat> is kind of an R of one style structure um, just for now, or is there some ductility assumed that you can reduce your forces a little bit? So we more or less have two options. There is <clears throat> R of one, mm-hmm. um, which is the the primary that that's what's used most often. Yeah. Um, there's also an enhanced strength. Um, Kind of criteria. There, there's some, uh, you know, requirements for connection strength and over strength and redundancy that you need to meet. But if you meet all of these requirements, you can actually use an R of 1.5. Okay. Um, now, similar to you know all other buildings, if you have mixed systems in two different directions, you need to use the lowest R. So. A lot of times we end up at R equals one, even if we have some frames that meet this enhanced connection strength criteria, just because one of the criterion for enhanced strength is that it's multi-tiered. I I believe the thought is you have a bit of redundancy there. Mm -hmm. If you have a multi-tier X brace frame, even if one brace does fail, you still have its pair that could act as a tension only brace. Uh, so I, I think they're just counting on a bit of redundancy there. I see. But so if we have a single tier X braced frame, yeah, we automatically don't qualify for that enhanced. Oh gosh. Okay. So, yeah. So we're at R equals one. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the the last questions we have I should throw out as almost quick ones. Um, software packages are are. Is there anything specific to FRP? How are you guys doing your analysis? Is it just kind of pull out the results from a from a frame software package and then you know do what you know needs to happen to convert this to FRP? Um, so kind of, you asked two questions with varying answers. I tend to ask two <laughs> questions at once. Yeah, it's a bad habit. <laughs> so uh, to my knowledge, no, there's no package that will design FRP for you. Uh, we've developed a lot of in-house. Uh, you know, spreadsheets to help with this process. And we use a finite element software, uh, visual analysis is what we use primarily, with, to determine all of the member reactions and even perform, you know, dynamic modal analyses, export the, the results into our in-house suite of, of uh, spreadsheets. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and uh, manufacturing material availability, do most states, are have a plant or a facility that stores this stuff or, you know, within an adjacent state? Is it easy to get everywhere? Um, I haven't heard of a lot of material availability issues um, uh-huh. as far as the, the projects we've worked on. Uh, we primarily work with, uh, I would say, three uh, manufacturers. And I know uh, they've supplied product, you know, as far as, Alaska, all the way to, you know, the the Bahamas. Well, so okay. it, I don't believe material availability is a is a big issue. That's all for now. 
If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, let us know. Jake is tremendously informed about the FRP industry, and luckily for us, he's happy to share that knowledge. We may do another episode with Jake to dive a little deeper into some of these topics, so please reach out with any questions you have for him or any pieces of the FRP puzzle you'd like to know more about. Thanks for listening to the Structural Engineering Podcast. See you next time.